Today's reading comes from 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, and Luke 2, 8 through 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me as a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Father, we come to you now in this Advent season, desperately not wanting it to be business as usual, and desiring to encounter you afresh and anew. In the middle of winter, I hear words of life, hear words of regeneration, hear words uh, that, that give us strength. And so, Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the glory and the wonder of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. If I haven't introduced myself to you yet, my name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. Uh, As you might have uh, been able to tell, we're turning this morning, uh, leaving the Sermon on the Mount for a season and coming back in January. And and this morning, we're we're starting our Advent series, a series we're calling uh, The Turning Point of History. The Turning Point of History. Uh, Our hope for this series, as we sort of uh, conceived it, uh, was we would see how the arrival or, or advent of Jesus the Son of God, changes the entire trajectory of human history. How the coming of Jesus changes the whole human historical picture. And over the next four weeks, we'll look at Jesus as the promised king, the promised priest, and the promised prophet who changes everything. And this morning, our focus is on Jesus, the promised king. And immediately, I can, I can feel it, and you can feel it, talk of kingship uh, sticks out to us as antiquated, doesn't it? Seems strange. We think of kings, and immediately we think of what? Um, uh, powerless figureheads, speaking uh, with accents like Tom's, uh, and, and drinking tea, right? That's what we think about when we think of kings, right? So perhaps a, a more modern way to begin thinking about King Jesus would be to consider the power structures of our own day. Uh, We recently, if you've been awake, uh, had an election. And I know many Vancouverites 
I went to the polls hoping for change in whatever area you fancied. But I remember, and maybe you do too, uh, when Trudeau was first elected and the so-called red wave uh, spread across uh, the country. It was Trudeau mania 2.0 and with his election came these, these great expectations, these great desires. But as our most recent election reminded us, that Trudeau mania is over. And what remains is arguably the most divided Canada has ever been. And this cycle of hope leading to disappointment and, and, and hope leading to, to, to disappointment is one we've seen over and over and over again all over the world. In every country, in every nation, in every time. Whether you lean to the left or to the right, whether you're a communist or a capitalist, the falling and rising of empires... And with them, the dreams of their people is as old as time itself. So how does King Jesus fit with the global political realities of our day? Frankly, maybe you're not overly concerned about the global powers and political movements. Your concern, maybe this morning, is much more local, much more personal. For one... A Christmas is notoriously lonely. It's notoriously also stressful. For others, this Christmas is a reminder of what is not. A family member whose seat will remain empty for the first time this year. The missing laughter of children you thought you would have by now. Or the suspicious absence of friends who don't seem to reach out as much as you'd like. Never mind geopolitical realities. Does King Jesus have anything to do with my reality? My increasingly fragile little world? See, the bad news of Advent, and there is bad news in Advent, is that Advent is God's stubborn reminder that things are not the way they should be. But the good news of Advent... The good news of the coming of King Jesus is that Advent reminds us that God is not content with leaving things the way they are. This morning, we're going to consider how the kingship of Jesus shows us both the bad and good news of this season. And if you're taking notes, really simply, I want to use three headings this morning. Uh, The need for a king, the promised king, and the arrival of the king. The need for a king, the promised king, and the arrival of the king. Of the king. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Now, if you've been around East Vancouver for a while, this church for a while, you know that I have used this first time and time again, and I will use it unapologetically this morning because there's so much here. But in Genesis 1, we of course find the creation narrative, God creating the world. And in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, he creates us, people. And I want us to listen this morning about how God talks about us. See, there's this implicit assumption we have as an individualistic, uh, anti-authoritarian culture that the idea of kings and ruling and reigning just in general is a bad idea. That everything would be fixed, everything would be better if we just got rid of that whole antiquated system. Even governments, not not good, right? Not, not, Not good. That's sort of our romantic notion that we popularly hold in the culture. But I want us to see from the very beginning... That it was God's good, pla- God's good plan that there be uh, kings and ruling and reigning and dominion in some way, shape, or form uh, f- from the very beginning. So look at Genesis 1, 26 to 28 with me. 
And let's just read that. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have, notice this word, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Look at verse 28, And God blessed them and said, sorry, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And again, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God creates us, man, male, female, to be his kingly representatives here on earth, to to help give order to the chaos, to rule and reign to the end that all creation, that you and I, everything would flourish, would, would, would do well, that things would not go off the tracks. But, but humanity can't be God's kingly representatives if we would rather represent ourselves. And what we find in Genesis 3 is precisely this. Humanity asserting itself as good kings to the detriment of everything and everyone. The result? What happens when there is no good government? What happens when there is no good ruling and reigning? There is no peace. There's no peace. This is all throughout our Bibles. Fast forward to Genesis 17. We see God's plan for peace involves a covenant with Abraham. And notice what God says to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah. Twice, in Genesis 17, 6, and 15 to 16, he imagines that this, this plan for peace will involve kings. He says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. We could keep on going in our Bibles. I could show you example after example where we see God's plan for peace. The accomplishing of peace involves a king, involves a good and just government. All this to say, I think it is commonly believed in the church that kings and government are God's backup plan. These hastily put together plans with duct tape and a prayer, as if God is shrugging and saying, well, it's the best I could do with the time constraints you guys put on me. This is so important that we begin by seeing this Christ city. The Bible identifies our lack of peace. The Bible identifies our lack of peace. Not with with, with kingship, not with government in general, but with illegitimate government. With illegitimate kingship. With with bad governments. With bad kings. Again, many of us have a vision of flourishing that rules out any type of authority structure altogether. We do not like authority have any conversation with any person in this city of Vancouver about authority, and you will quickly realize we do not like authority. We don't. It's a swear word. We have this vision and said that it's perhaps more influenced by John Lennon than the Bible. We, we fancy a sort of polite communism where no one is above anyone else, and we all just sort of intuit the needs of another. And we do all this, of course, wearing Birkenstocks, Right? 
That's the ideal. It's a joke. If you have Birkenstocks, so do I. It's fine. The message of the Bible, though, all the way throughout, is that peace in our world will only come with a righteous king. A king who will institute a just and righteous government. The problem this morning is not a king, but the wrong kind of king. See, if we were to trace the biblical narrative past Adam and Eve, uh, past Abraham, you find eventually God's people being ruled over by judges. By judges. And Israel looks around and they notice that no other nation is ruled and led by judges. And they want a king. They want kings. They look at the Canaanite nations around them and they see these figureheads of absolute power. Centralized control. Right? And they ignore all the abuses that that come with it. But they say to themselves, we want a king like that. Our problem this morning is not with kingship in general. It's with kings who abuse that power. That we don't have a good king. But Israel wants a king like that. And so a king like that they get. Enter 2 Samuel 7, the text we read, and the promise of a king. By by the time we reach 2 Samuel 7, uh, God's people have already been through their first king, Saul, And surprise, surprise, he's turned out much like the kings of the other nations. But their second king, King David, well, he seems to be quite different. He seems to be the rare king who could actually bring peace, who could do what kings are supposed to do. A quick look at David's resume would include the following. David, he unites a divided kingdom. He establishes Jerusalem as the capital city of his reign. And through David, the enemies of Israel are are conquered. David lays the groundwork for the flourishing that Solomon will experience in his rule and his reign. And it's King David who would bring the ark of God back where it belonged. And more than just killing it at work, because David is killing it at work. He's employee of the month ten times over. David is killing it at home. He's killing it in his relationship with God. Everything is going very, very well. A sort of a summary statement of David at his height. 2 Samuel 5.10 says this, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now the climax of David's ascension, I think, is, is 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's in chapter 7 that God makes this covenant or, or promise with David. It begins with David deciding that he will build a temple or a house for the Lord. See, see the ark was in sort of Canaanite territory, and then before that it was in a tent, and David says, no longer shall the ark be in a tent. I'm going to build a house for it, a temple for the ark. And so he tells the prophet Nathan, I'm going to build this. And the prophet Nathan thinks this is a good idea, until that very night the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. And we pick up the story in verse 5. And I want us to read this. It's long, but it's good that we get used to reading long chunks of Scripture. So 2 Samuel 7, 5 to 10 says this. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel... Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, 
that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And listen to this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. See, here's the twist. And there's this intentional wordplay in the text we have to see. David wants to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord says, thanks, but but no thanks. Your your son can build that for me. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to continue to cut off your enemies from before you. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. And, and more than that, I'm going to place or, or plant my people, Israel, securely in the land. But there's more here. See, there's this future component to this covenant. The Lord says to David, you will not make a house for me, but I will make you. Did you catch that? I will make you a house. You a house. Well, what does that mean? Enter our text we heard read earlier this morning from Tom. We heard this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The the covenant, the promise that the Lord is making with David, extends well beyond David's lifetime, after he has laid down with his fathers in death. The house that the Lord is building is a royal household or a royal lineage. It's a lineage that will begin with David and his son Solomon who will build the temple. But but past Solomon, the Lord promises to not do away with this lineage. Even when they sin, these leaders will be disciplined. but, But the Lord says, my steadfast love will not depart from him. My love will not go from him. It's a royal lineage that involves a a father-son relationship from the Lord to the king. In other words, the king would show us what God is like in the same way the son shows us what a father is like. It's a royal lineage that will endure forever. There is no end to this covenant that God is making with David. A king of this line will rule forever. It's a royal lineage, we're told, that will result in righteousness and flourishing A king of this line will bring about the blessing and the righteousness first promised to Abraham. This future component of this covenant is so, so important this morning because if we read past 2 Samuel 7, we find even poster boy David fails us. Even David misses it. In the chapters that follow in 2 Samuel we find David caught up in, in murder and adultery. Second Samuel ends with, with David not being faith-filled, not consulting the Lord before he goes into battle, but, but counting his armies, relying on the strength of his military. 
2 Samuel ends with God sending a plague on Israel, killing 70,000, and all of Jerusalem is threatened. And David tries. David tries in vain to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for his sin to spare the people. But David can't. For all of his righteousness, all of his resume, David's a transgressor. How could David atone for his own sin? And it seems like we're back where we started. The endless cycle of hope leading to disappointment, back to hope leading to disappointment. And if what we've just seen is the bad news of Advent, God's stubborn reminder that things are not the way they should be, I think it's time now to turn and consider the good news of Advent. That Advent reminds us that God is not content with leaving things the way they are. And we know this because he sent a king. The need for a king, the promise of a king, now the arrival of a king. Our other text in Luke 2 that we heard read this morning went like this. Luke 2 8 to 14, a very famous Christmas text. There Luke says this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, sign for you rather. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The good news of great joy that the angels bring to the shepherds is the king has come. The king's arrived. He's he's here. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. From, From David's line in the city of David comes a Savior, the Christ, Messiah, the Lord himself. There is so much wrapped up in these three titles, the angels declare over Jesus. See, in saying Jesus is Savior, Luke has an eye towards the Roman Empire who declared Caesar to be Savior. Caesar was rescuer. But no, Luke says, no, the angels say, Jesus is the one who who truly saves. In saying Jesus is, is Christ, Luke tells us that Jesus is the anointed one. Just as kings were anointed and and set apart to rule and reign, so too is Jesus set apart. He's the one who's set apart to save. And in calling Jesus Lord, Luke tells us, the angels tell us, God himself tells us that he is the one who should be listened to, obeyed, the one to whom we should cede the throne to. Jesus, Luke tells us in no uncertain terms, is the good king who saves. Jesus is the good king we've been waiting for. Jesus is the good king Abraham and Moses have been pointing towards and David have been pointing towards. Jesus is the good king who saves. He is the fulfillment of the line of David. And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is show us three things. 
Three things about how King Jesus changes everything from these two texts today. The first thing is this. This is so important. So important. King Jesus rules as God. King Jesus rules as God. Do you remember? The Lord said to David, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Again, the idea is that the king in David's line will reflect God's character in their ruling, would show us of the character and nature of who God is. But King Jesus does not just reflect the character of God, but the overwhelming testimony of the Gospels is, and and of the rest of the New Testament, is that Jesus is God. He is God. In King Jesus, we see perfectly the heart and character of God. And the wonder of each advent, we must not lose this, the wonder of each advent is that in beholding the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, we are beholding God incarnate. The second person of the Trinity incarnate. Why would God do this? I can think of many things, but we need to see this morning that God would do this because he loves you. Because he loves you. More specifically, because the Father loves you so much, he wants to invite you into the love he has always had for his son. Do you hear that, Christ City? The Father loves you so much, he wants to invite you into the love that he has always had from eternity past for his son. One teacher writes this, Ultimately, the Father sent the Son because the Father so loved the Son and wanted to share that love and fellowship. His love for the world is the overflow of his almighty love for the Son. When we bow our knees to King Jesus, we are eternally welcomed into the love that has eternally existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I have to ask this morning, what can earthly kingdoms give you? What can earthly kings promise you? What is a tax cut or a pipeline or not a pipeline compared to what King Jesus wants to give you, can give you, He is inviting us in the eternal love that has always existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We participate in that in Christ when He is our King and He is our Lord. See, the second thing we need to see is this. King Jesus brings true peace. True peace. All the angels, did you notice their their exuberance of praise? All the angels sing in worship. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. King Jesus has come to bring peace. He's come to bring peace between us and God. In sending his son, God shows us that he is not content to stand by and watch humanity reject his kingship, reject his lordship. He goes out, he goes out, and, and, and he gets us. The good father sends his good king Jesus to do what David could not do. See, David's failure to atone for Israel's sin was because David wasn't worthy. I mean, this, the whole plague was because of David in the first place. The perfect obedience of Jesus, the worthiness of Jesus, seen in his death on the cross, 
means Jesus alone is able to die on that cross in our place. Jesus alone is able to come out of the grave for our forgiveness. It's the good King Jesus alone who is able to take our warring hearts, our conflicted hearts, make them soft, and bring them back under his good kingship. In Christ City, he wants to do that today. I'm convinced he wants to do that today. What is that thing or thing or things that you want to keep from King Jesus this morning? Maybe it's your sex life. Maybe it's your autonomy. Maybe it's just your whole identity. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's, it's everything. My prayer this morning and my prayer this week for us is that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of our hearts to see the goodness and trustworthiness of King Jesus. Because notice how King Jesus brought peace. Notice how he did this. King Jesus does not send his, his hapless servants into war on his behalf, right? Go and fight those guys for me. Go fight sin for me, angels. He did not remain comfortably on his throne like David, who stayed back from battle, who did not participate in the war. No, Jesus leaves his eternal home. He puts on humanity, and he dies a humiliating death in our place, on our behalf, for our salvation. Again, I I have to ask, what other king has done that for you? Which of our politicians offer to do this for us? And yet our hearts are more excited for them than they are for King Jesus. More hopeful for, for their platform than it is for King Jesus's. See, not only does King Jesus bring peace between God and humanity, he is bringing peace in our world, amongst ourselves, and in our broader world even now. The the task of stewarding his creation to flourishing, right? The work of salt and light we saw last week. This work of being salt and light. He is doing now through us by his spirit. Uh, It was Tolkien who wrote in The Return of the King. Permit me one Lord of the Rings reference. The hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. As we've seen throughout our whole series on the Sermon on the Mount, King Jesus has come to restore us, to take a fractured world and bring it to wholeness, oneness. Finally, we need to see this. King Jesus reigns now. He reigns now. He reigns now. We will leave today, I will leave today, you will leave today, and on one level, everything will be the same. Everything will feel the same, it will still be gray outside, and be gray for, month, gray for months to come, and it will be the same. The political cycle of great promise and great disappointment will persist. So too will corruption and other abuses of power, and we will be tempted to say, away with kings altogether, away with governments altogether. We'd like a polite communism instead. If King Jesus is ruling and reigning even now, how does that change my life today? Here's the last thing I want to say before we respond. Making Jesus your king immediately places you in a story of hope. Places you in a story of hope. 
takes you out of the cycle of, of, of hope and disappointment and puts you solely in a story of hope and of great expectation. If Jesus is your king, then your world no longer needs to rise and fall with Twitter and with a newspaper. If Jesus is your king, then you can be assured that all things, even the hard things, maybe especially the hard things, are are purposely shaping you into a citizen of his kingdom. If Jesus is your king, then you can be assured that one day peace will reign in fullness because the righteous king will complete what he began. The bad news of Advent is that Advent is God's stubborn reminder that things are not the way they should be. But the good news of Advent The good news of Advent, hear this, Christ City, is that God is not content leaving things the way they are. See, the king who was promised is the king who has come and is the king who will come again. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.